and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 55. I'm Nick Dixon here with Toby Young, whose cancelled bad boy status is starting to look relatively mild. Coming up, Russell Brand becomes Russell Band, but which side are you on? And if we have any time left after that, we'll cover some other stories, plus, of course, peak woke. But Toby, we have to start with Russell Brand. I'm calling Russell Band there in a clever wordplay because he has been cancelled quite brutally. And there's so much to get into here, I almost don't know where to start. Firstly, there's the fact of, do we think he did this? And it's been very hard for me as a comedian because one hears things, one has heard things from trusted sources throughout the years, which is why I haven't been able to leap to his defense in the way that so many people have. And many people have leapt to his defense in a quite surprising way. Jordan Peterson, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, Andrew Tate, perhaps less surprising, Bev Turner on GB News. Loads of people just weighed in to defend him, which I was quite surprised at. Then the left all weighed in to attack him and it immediately became quite tribal. And there was what I was calling the conspiracy theory, which is they're saying that he's a conspiracy theorist and they're attacking him for all the stuff he does on YouTube about wellness, which we know is a gateway to the alt-right, of course. But they're positing their own conspiracy theory that he created this whole persona of rebel counterculture speaking out against the mainstream media purely to deflect any future allegations which he knew were coming out. Now, I'm sure he was aware that there were future allegations because there's so many rumors for years that he he has had lawyers and, you know, I, these are all rumors, but I'm sure he was aware that people were wanting to do this to him at some point. But I, the idea that he created his whole, whole persona for that reason, this counterculture persona, I find questionable. They should at least be aware that they are positing their own conspiracy theory. Anyway, then there's the, the, the cancellation since. He's lost his tour, his book deal. YouTube have just demonetized him. And so then there's the issue of cancellation. Then there's the issue of due process and, you know, this trial by media. Does he deserve that? So where do you stand on all this, Toby? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I think you've you've, you've covered a lot of the um, thorny questions there. Um, Well, like you, um, I'm skeptical that um, he's developed this new persona in which he's encouraging his audience of 6.5 million subscribers to his what his rumble channel first his youtube channel his rumble channel various channels he's encouraged them to be skeptical about claims they encounter in the mainstream media as a way of ensuring against the day that these stories would break because he knows they've been in the ether for such a long time. Um, I'm skeptical about that. Um, uh, I mean, he's got plenty of other, uh, if you want to be mercenary about it, he's got plenty of other mercenary motives for assuming this new persona. I mean, I imagine he's raking in the cash um, with 6.5 million subscribers. Um, And um, I think, you know, um, in some ways, he was only kind of, uh, he was he was never a very intellectually serious member of the left. Um, uh, you know, if you look, if you I didn't read his book Revolution, um, I didn't watch the Trues. I never went to see him on his two hundred date live tour with Owen Jones. I don't think I ever read his Guardian column, which apparently he had for seven years. But he I'm was surprised um, you didn't go and see him and Owen Jones on tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but I, I I certainly get the impression that he was never a very intellectually serious member of the left. Um, he just you know, like the idea of being a kind of Che Guevara of the 21st century. Um, But um, so I don't think, you know, I don't think it's that much of a 
a, a change for him to have now embraced this kind of um, uh, pro-free speech, vaccine skeptical uh, persona. Um, so I don't buy that conspiracy theory like you. Um, do I think he did it? Well, I had I, I didn't actually see the Dispatches um, documentary. Haven't been able to watch that yet. But I did read the um, uh, investigation in the Sunday Times when it dropped um, on Saturday afternoon. And um, I found most of the allegations quite credible. Um, and my reason for saying that is partly because um, there was quite a lot of corroborating evidence. So, for instance... Um, the woman who claimed that she was raped by him in Los Angeles. Um, uh, she, she was able to show um, the, 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 the journalist she spoke to text messages that she'd sent to him and replies from him. And they were able to authenticate that that was indeed his number at the time. She was taken to what the UCLA rape medical crisis center they took some forensic evidence. Apparently, it was the story was known to the LAPD, and I think the LAPD confirmed that. Um, so, you know, it seemed there was quite a lot of corroborating evidence. She didn't sound like she was making it up. Um, it wasn't clear what her incentive would be if she was making it up. Um, and I also thought the sixteen year well, the girl who was sixteen when she first had a relationship with him. Um, uh, or when she had a relationship with him, she sounded quite credible too. Um, and it sounded like she had some corroborating witnesses, such as her mother um, and so forth. Um, uh, so and as you say, there have been these rumours swirling about Russell Brand and his toxic behaviour towards women for some years. Um, so um, on balance, I think I do believe the lion's share of the allegations Um and um, uh, you know, people say, "What about due process? You know, we shouldn't the presumption of the presumption of innocence, due process, until he's found guilty in a court of law. We should extend the presumption of innocence to him." Well, I think that that you can't insist on the same threshold in the court of public opinion as you can in a legal court. Um, so I don't think it's that unreasonable for people to uh, make up their minds about this. Um, even if there is still some room for reasonable doubt. I don't think the prosecutorial bar, as it were, should be as high in the court of public opinion as it is in a properly in a proper legal court. Uh, but also, I think it's worth pointing out that, yes, he hasn't been given legal due process, um, but, you know, um, there has been a kind of due process nevertheless. I mean, you know, um, a team of investigative journalists and editors from the Sunday Times, the Times, and the Dispatches program at Channel 4, they've been working on this story for four years. Um, they've gone to great lengths to try and substantiate these allegations, to stand up the stories, to make sure that the women aren't making it up. Um, and um, they'll have had to satisfy um, you know, some very exacting uh, legal standards in order to avoid defamation suits, invasion of privacy suits. And, you know, He's very litigious. One of the reasons these stories haven't appeared sooner is because he is quite litigious. He's employed teams of lawyers. Um, uh, so, you know, they've had to meet quite a high standard in order to publish these stories. So there has been a kind of due process. And um, so, so, so on balance, um, I'd say um, I believe 
most of these stories, possibly even all of these stories. Um, so I think uh, I think he he probably is guilty, even though he hasn't been found guilty in a, in, a, in a court of law. Lots of people are saying, well, you know, he's been accused of criminal offences. He should therefore be tried in court. He's entitled to his day in court. He's entitled to cross-examine the women who brought this evidence against him. Um, uh, and there should be a police investigation. Well, it's quite difficult for um, these allegations to be investigated by the police um, and for a prosecution to be brought against him if none of the complainants want to report him to the police, want to um, appear as witnesses against him in a court of law. Now, it turns out one of them, since the story dropped over the weekend, a woman has come forward who claims she was sexually assaulted by him in Soho in 2003. And she has made a complaint to the police and the police are now investigating that complaint. But um, in general, I think it's quite, it's quite, it's quite, you know, it's quite a high bar to say we shouldn't jump to any conclusions about Russell Brand if he's been accused of these criminal offences until the police have investigated these offences, until a prosecution has been brought and he's had his day in court. If the women don't want to become complainants, make reports, appear as witnesses, um, but you know, should should someone be, should the presumption of innocence be extended to someone accused of sexual offences, including rape, if they haven't actually been tried in a court of law? Uh, that seems too high a bar, I think. Um, so anyway, I, I do think he's probably a wrong one, um, and then then we get to the question of timing. Um, do you want to do you want to weigh in on the question of timing? Yeah, because that was one thing I was just going to pick up on what you said there. When you said, I can't remember because you said quite a lot, but it was in the middle somewhere. I was going to respond and say that on the question of why now, the suspicious part for some people is this part of the article in the in the Sunday Times. Uh, all said they felt ready to speak only after being approached by reporters. Several said they felt compelled to do so, given Brand's newfound prominence as an online wellness influencer with millions of followers on YouTube and other sites. So that was the red meat for the idea of, hey, it's a purely persecution, because it says they're basically saying they felt somehow they had to because he has millions of followers. We could also read in perhaps into that because he's now saying things that are, are against the sort of regime narrative that these people don't agree with. Perhaps, you know, perhaps that's in there. So that's one answer for why now. I mean, um, you know, another version of, of that same thing is he had protection. He, he, there were lots of people who wouldn't want to ruin their careers. Whereas when you are an, you only step out of the regime, it's, it's not that, you know, it could just be how long the investigation took place. I understand that. But the argument would be once he stepped out of the regime politics of the sort of, you know, woke world, they're going to call it into the other side of the counterculture. He lost his protection and he became a, an easy target. That's why it didn't drop sooner. And the other argument is just it took too long to investigate. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I don't think there can be any doubt that his new persona played a part in why some of these women were prepared to speak to journalists now and not before, and perhaps even why one of them has now decided to make a complaint to the police. Um, but that doesn't mean that the allegations have been confected by the MSM in order to discredit a competitor or confected by defenders of the narratives that Russell Brand has been attacking. Um, uh, you know, both, both of those things can be true. Yes, it's true that his um, new anti-establishment uh, rebel dissident persona may have played a part in 
why he's been exposed now. But it, it, it may also be true that um, he's guilty of the things he's been accused of. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, it's not either or. And to sort of frame this as a kind of binary choice in which you either believe he's innocent and a victim of a conspiracy or guilty and there's no conspiracy, I think is um, a false a false binary. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think, interestingly, as you say, in the, in the, in the piece in... The Times, I think it was, was it on I think it was, it was, it was, it was a company, the original story, um, uh, saying, why now? What's the timing of, uh, what's the backstory behind the investigation? Yeah, as you say, there were these, a couple of the women, one of the women, I think, one of the women had said that uh, the reason she um, was prepared to talk to journalists about this now and hadn't been before is because he had reinvented himself as a wellness guru. She didn't say as an anti-vaxxer um, uh, uh, you know, or, or, or as someone who is now aligned with Elon Musk and Robert Kennedy Jr. and Jordan Peterson, rather than Owen Jones, um, she said wellness guru in particular. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's because that's become a kind of um, you know a dog whistle for alt right gateway Absolutely. to the alt right. Um, but but maybe she just resented the idea that you know he's now all about you know um, dealing with your trauma and kind of um, getting therapy. And helping people who are victims of trauma, and you know, he's he one of the one of the charities that's dropped him uh, was a was a rape crisis charity. So you can see why, if you know, if she's if she's telling the truth about what happened to her in Los Angeles twenty plus years ago, it would irritate her that he's now presenting and earning money as a wellness guru. Um, uh, uh, so, so, but it wasn't interesting. That, so I, I can, so that, that, that struck me as quite plausible, but that doesn't in any way, I don't think, discredit her as a witness for the prosecution. What's interesting there is I can imagine an individual thinking, yeah, sod this guy, he's a hypocrite, he did these things, now he's Mr. Wellness. Yeah, but when the media use wellness, like Emily Maitlis just used it explicitly on the news agent saying, oh, wellness, you know, an anti-vax, she, she said something else, probably conspiracy theorists. They explicitly mean that, as does Mariana Spring. They're obsessed with wellness as this gateway to mm. the alt right, yeah. and so yeah. that's what they mean when they say it. So, yeah, and it, it's and 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 Emily Maitlis also repeated the conspiracy theory that Brand Brand planned this whole persona. That's become the very the sort of de rigueur conspiracy theory for the establishment. They just don't mind repeating that and worrying. They don't worry if that sounds a little bit silly or contrived. They just go with that. What about the angle? And the one thing I didn't mention is, you know, there was rumors of this vice piece was meant to come out and there was a super injunction. So that's another reason things can get delayed. You may have mentioned. What about, though, the angle of, well, let's first, there's the angle of Jess Phillips says women are made to feel like they have to prove themselves, which I thought was funny. It's like, well, as if they live in a society with laws. I mean, because I have, I also hold two simultaneous things that can both be true. One is I'm not a fan of Bram because I've heard too much from people in the comedy world, people I trust, very hardy women as well who are, who are not woke at all, who are very hardy, almost to a, a ridiculous extent, but who's, who still have told me things. So that's why I've not come out in the way that Peterson has. And Peterson has been surprisingly bold, I would say, perhaps because he's, you know, allied with him now. He's doing his event, I've heard, and Musk. And, you know, they, they've been very, very bold at saying it's purely the cancelled because of his views thing, which slightly surprised me because even I haven't been that, but people might think I would do that. But I've been much more, not cautious because I don't care about what the regime think, but because I, for my own conscience, I don't, I don't think this is the guy to back. Simultaneously, I am very encouraged that people 
want due process, perhaps more than you, because you're sort of pointing out the flaws in that. But I'm encouraged that so many people are saying, what about due process? We can't just believe all women. Because that was always unworkable nonsense, believe all women. That was always just an attack on men. So even though I think this is the wrong test case, because I'm not, this is not the guy I'm going to back, at the same time, I am backing the concept of let's bring back due process. Because otherwise, what we have, we have a primitive allegation culture where anyone can be have their can be cancelled at any time from an accusation. You or me, anyone can it can happen today because there doesn't need to be mm. any proof or any validity. Well, I, I suppose look at Kevin suppose, Spacey as well. Lastly, yeah. that's had yeah. no impact. The fact that he was cleared has had no impact on his career has not come back. I think there's a there's a kind of spectrum of due process. Um, I think we can both agree that um, an anonymous, uncorroborated allegation of sexual misconduct shouldn't under any circumstances end your career. That's not something you should be cancelled for. And um, that was the problem with the, what's it called, the shitty media men list that was produced in New York some years ago. Lots of anonymous allegations on a Google Doc, um, uh, completely uncorroborated, ended lots of men's careers. And one person I spoke to was driven to the point of suicide by a rape allegation in the shitty media men list, um, uh, even though um, whoever it was who's accused him of rape never came forward, never identified themselves, never produced any corroborating evidence. And he almost killed himself as a consequence of that. That I think we can agree. That That's far too low a bar. There has to be some due process at the very least, uh, rather than none at all before you suffer any ne- negative repercussions. And then there's the kind of, there's there's the other thing which I think we can agree on, which is that if someone is found guilty of a sexual offence in a criminal court, um, then there being no platform, them losing a publishing deal, being dumped by their agents, etc. That that's, that's also fair game. I think that kind of the, the grey area is if there's been some kind of due process, if there's been a four-year investigation by professional teams of investigative journalists um, working for, you know, um, well-resourced, prestigious publications like the Times and the Sunday Times, Channel Four Dispatches, and they've, they, you know, and and it's all been properly legaled, and the evidence has been sifted and passed and weighed, and so on and so forth. Well. Is that sufficiently due processy enough to justify the people being charged uh, being being cancelled? Um, I, I, or do we should we should we insist that um, a higher bar has to be met before they suffer sort of really negative repercussions for their careers? Um, uh, and I'm sort of um, on the fence there, and I think it perhaps perhaps a kind of nuanced answer is that um, it depends on the form the cancellation takes. Um, I mean, probably okay for his agents to drop him in light of the um, seemingly quite robust uh, allegations, quite plausible allegations, uh, but but maybe not okay for YouTube to demonetize um, his, um, uh, you know, his back catalogue of videos. I think he does most of his stuff for Rumble now. Um, I mean, YouTube's rationale for doing that were it's a breach of our terms of service for our content creators to do anything which harms other content creators, harms our users, or, and this was the dodgy bit, harms our broader ecosystem. I mean, that seemed to me to be too broad 
and too nebulous a standard to be applied here and you know could be a reason for demonetizing almost anyone um so i think um it depends upon the kind of what you're losing how negative the negative repercussions are as to how high the prosecutorial bar needs to be uh, mm. so that's my kind of nuanced position on that i don't think it's an open and shut case of unless he's found guilty in a court of law he should suffer no negative consequences um because that's going to let a lot of bad men get away with an awful lot okay uh, just on the youtube thing he is still very much on youtube a video three days ago when he countered these allegations has 1.7 million one before that 280k 675k 719k 954 so he will be losing a lot of money from that those are huge views still on even though i know he's gone to rumble you know demonetizing that amount of views so he will lose a lot of money there but yeah that's an interesting point about the the nuance of due process um what about well people are just they're, they're sick of me too though aren't they and they're also they also have a, a lack of trust in media to an unprecedented degree one thing i noticed in the in a piece by Mary Harrington was that she talked about sort of experiences that had happened to her where she changed her perception later. And she talked about the shift in culture. Now it's perfectly fine for a woman to later think, oh, I actually regret that in hindsight, in hindsight, maybe that guy was more creepy than I thought. And it's okay to say, and the culture's changed, but that can't be, a, a, you can't retroactively punish someone based on that. You can feel bad about it, but that can't be a legal standard, surely. I mean, unless it really was rape, then that, I suppose it. Then I suppose it can be a legal standard. But how far yeah. can you say retroactively or retrospectively mm. that was that was actual rape? Yes, well, I think um, I think that applies to um, some sexual misdemeanors. Um, so you know, um, uh, you know, in, in in some American colleges, if you're in a relationship, a sexual relationship with a woman, and you've had sex many times before. But if you remove her trousers and her underwear without her explicit consent, you can be kicked out of that university under, you know, Title IX. Um, and I had one particular example of that very thing happening to a male student. Um, clearly, you know, um, that's behaviour that would have been judged completely acceptable 10 years ago and probably acceptable by most people now, but in some on some American colleges, is considered unacceptable. So, yeah, she's right in that respect. But with respect to the things Russell Brand uh, has been accused of, um, uh, I'm not sure that that applies. Um, you know, they were, they're wrong now and they were wrong then. Yeah, well, when I read the piece, I mean, I find it appalling. Like I say, I've heard lots of things over the years. So it's, it's not like... The only reason and I might come across a bit different today, that's because I've been through that phase. I've been through the phase of thinking, oh, that's awful. I'm now kind of moved into the next phase of, but the backlash is so bad that I'm now more focused on that. I'll give you one example. This point that the media created him. I mean, the media basically creates these, but it gives us these people that are morally dubious and I can see it straight away and we can see what they're like. The media pushes them on us pretending that they can't see it. And then when it comes to time to cancel them, they then sit on their high horse with this unearned moral superiority and then they have a great time cancelling them and it's the same people and that's very frustrating and one thing Simon Evans one nuance he pointed out was by the way that it was never the comedy world it was the TV world which is even worse and it is that world and Ben Shapiro had quite an interesting nuance point on this he was saying the kind of behaviour he was openly exhibiting was praised by the media that's the kind of behaviour they advocate which is a lascivious sort of sexual expression promiscuity whatever but but now he's actually moved away from that and is advocating having a wife and uh, 
and you know living a sort of more wholesome life it's now that they come for him because they don't like that lifestyle but they come for him for the prior lifestyle that they actually agree with but that's the excuse they use that's quite a sort of complex <laughs> argument maybe 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 that, a is silly quite, argument. that is that is quite a complex argument i mean i think the i think um i don't think that um you know they whoever they are have come for him um because he's now um uh switch sides in the culture war um i don't think it's a i do think the fact that he was on the other side until two or three years ago and was a sort of darling of the left you know ed miliband let's not forget went to his house to solicit his kind of papal blessing um in the run-up to the 2015 general election and Owen Jones wrote that famous column in which he said, you know, the Conservatives should be worried now, now that now that <laughs> Russell Brand's endorsed Ed Miliband. Um, but um I think that did in that did give him some protection. When he was a darling of the left, when he was quite closely linked to the left, had a column in The Guardian, etc. Um uh that that protected him. Uh but I d- and he'd lot he'd lost that kind of protective armour. Uh, in the past two or three years, and that's definitely contributed to his downfall. But I don't think, I don't think, the fact that he's now an alt-right wellness guru, quote unquote, is why he's been brought down. I don't think that's primarily why it's happening now. Um, uh, it, it, only in the sense that he was a made man. Um, uh, he was in the yeah. the left church, you know. 10 years ago and he's now left that church so he no longer can rely on the protection of that church so in that respect it's a significant factor yeah the wrinkle for Shapiro is that he's now more socially conservative yeah where you're saying it's just because he's left the left and gone to this other thing which I find more plausible Michael Knowles had another another take I don't think I don't know if Russell Brand is guilty or not I don't even really know who he is my whole take on the affair is that this is why the liberal establishment relentlessly peddles weird sex stuff if you ever turn on the powers that be even decades later there will be compromise that's the compromise argument, which is fairly straightforward. That's the kind of David Cameron pig argument. Uh, I'm not saying that ever happened either, by the way. I don't know the pig thing. But, you know, that's the idea. You do something awful, we can use it against you later. More straightforward. A more interesting argument, I think. Well, this is what I've said. I mean, James O'Brien has been putting out these tweets today, which to me are absurd. I mean, he, he talks about this piece from Marina Hyde, which has its own absurdities I can get into. But he says, this is even better than you'd expect from Marina, and you'd expect it to be outstanding. I enjoyed interviewing him a few times and complete, completely failed to see that at least after 2008, meaning the Saxgate scandal, the cheeky chappy stick should have been torn to shreds. The thoughtfulness here is inspiring. So I said, Russell Brand conned the liberal media for years by behaving exactly the same in public and in private and documenting his behavior in writing in case they somehow missed it. It's not clear at this stage if he literally drew them a picture. And by the way, if he did, it would probably have a penis in it. This, they knew what he was like. Why do they have to pretend they didn't now? Because they've updated their software. Lefties wanted rampant sexual expression and promiscuity. Now, however, they've updated and they've changed to rampant sexual expression for certain minority groups only, for the trans groups, for the blah, 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 the LGBTQ plus. They want, they can do anything. We can hear about their kinks all day and kink shaming and all the gross stuff that goes on. But what we can't hear about is a white heterosexual man just being rampant and laddish. That's now cancelled for them. They saw exactly what he was at the time, but they've updated their software. And they're in this year zero approach. Marina Hyde was castigating herself in a piece that she didn't do more about the satscape. She didn't center the victim. And she also is sort of saying, oh, free speech, which was a weirdly a 
uh, a lefty thing then. She's embarrassed slightly that free speech was a lefty yeah. thing then. It's year zero stuff. They update their software and then they can't understand. They, they go back and they judge it with their new morality, which will be updated again in 10 minutes. And the, you know that's what they can't see as well. They'll be hating what they say now in, in five minutes. What do you think to that, Toby? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely something in that, though I think, I suppose, in, in their defense, um, even though they were much more tolerant of sexually lascivious behavior, laddishness, braggadocio um, back in the day, and maybe thought it was part of a kind of liberation, radical, progressive agenda, um, uh, they probably didn't suspect that his behavior was quite as deprived depraved as as it actually was yeah you um, certainly wasn't deprived well, that's one thing we can agree on he was allegedly shagging 80 women a month this is the thing if you're like the here's the thing if you're the most powerful if you're like ultra famous with a famous charisma on top of it i mean it's gonna get a bit weird isn't it you just have ultimate choice of women you can do what you like you can push the boundaries further and further this is in no way apologizing for if, if there's any rape if there's any violence or anything like that, which is obviously appalling. But I do think there's a gray area. Here's something. I mean, having said all that, Toby, if the Times piece is true, if it's true, and obviously he's denied it strenuously, there's some awful stuff in there. I mean, and the 16-year-old girl is weird, especially that I found weird there is that the mother didn't stop her. The mother was so liberal. She's like, well, I can't really stop her seeing who she wants. If your daughter's 16, you can totally stop her seeing Russell Brand, knowing what he's like. And by the way, where is the father? Because if that's me she's not going to go and see him. And if she does, I'm going to smash his face. And that, that's, that's how I would approach it. Now, I'm not a father, so that's just my mm. take. But she even went round there, drove the daughter around, which is weird, but she, she was trying to protect her, I guess. And then he allegedly kissed her, hit the mother on the lips, which is obviously insane and gross. But um, there's a slight responsibility, though, that Toby, this is not victim blaming in any way, but it is a slight issue of, you, not for the 16-year-old, because she's a minor, but for everyone else, you met Russell Brand, you knew what you were doing. You wanted the experience. Now, absolutely, it doesn't mean you should be in any way assaulted, but it does it mean it does mean you didn't think you were going to meet his parents. Do you think there's any aspect of like you know? Because women have said this to me privately. I mean, you know, a lot of them, you know, they knew what they were getting into. What do you think to that? Well, um, I think I think that would um, that that may well. I mean, I think the women uh, know that that will be Russell Brand's defence. That will be thrown at them by his defenders and will be thrown at them in court. And that may have contributed to why they haven't complained to the police and agreed to appear as witnesses for the prosecution or to give evidence against him. Um, But if you were on the jury and um, that 16-year-old girl, age 30, whatever she is now, was testifying and was describing the various things that had happened to her. I mean, yes, the relationship um, was, for the most part, consensual. And she must have, up to a point, known um, what what she was getting into. Um, Nevertheless, he did things to her which she clearly hadn't consented to and which were abusive and to my mind if she's telling the truth met the threshold for a sexual assault prosecution i mean i guess it would partly depend on you know um uh how she bore up under cross-examination um but i would be inclined to give give her probably um 
you know, um, to sympathise with her and think, well, yes, up to a point, you knew what you were doing. You were only 16. Um he was grooming you, but no, I'm, saying I'm not going I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not to. I'm not going to rob you of your agency, even though you weren't an adult. Uh, but nevertheless, when you what you thought you were consenting to, what you thought you were getting into, wasn't what happened to you. That went way beyond what you thought you were getting into. I mean, the story of of what he did to her, you know, um, when she fought him off after he, you know done something pretty appalling his reaction his angry reaction to to what she'd done which was to hold her mouth open and drool into her mouth and then close her mouth and force her to swallow his drool i don't know that was that was disturbing and you feel like if she's if she if she is at some point brave enough to um report that to the police and appear as a witness for the prosecution i would like to see him punished for that if you know if he's found guilty I lost track of whether that was her or whether that was a different one because there was so many. I think that was her. That was her. The 16-year-old, I'm, I'm saying, is separate because she's a minor. I'm not actually okay. saying the same, that she should have any responsibility, really. I think her parents have to. If you're an older woman of age, not you know well above 18, I'm just saying, by no means does it excuse any behavior. I'm just saying, is there an element where the Harvey Weinstein thing, you were in a hotel room with Harvey Weinstein, what did you think was happening? I'm just raising that, mm. which is what mm. some people will say, men and women pointing this out. But no, yeah. it certainly doesn't. A, 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 I, I think. I think. I think there's. I think there is a point to be made about um, where were the men? You know, um, a taxi driver who was dropping off the sixteen-year-old girl did urge her not to go um, uh, into Russell Brand's house. Did his best to warn her. Offered to take her home for free. Tried to bond with her by telling her he had a daughter the same age as her and he wouldn't want his daughter to go into the house. So he emerges quite well, although he didn't take the next step and follow her into the house and punch Russell Brown on the nose, which would have been even better. Um, but um, generally speaking, there's an absence, isn't there, of um, responsible men in this story. You know, people blame Russell Brand's behaviour on toxic masculinity and the implication of... Um, of Marina Hines' mere culpa piece is that she should have realised that, you know, there's only a thin line between promiscuous men who brag about their sexual conquests and rapists, you know, all part of the kind of toxic masculinity narrative. But actually, there's a there's a kind of counter narrative here, which is that if men weren't so inhibited uh, about expressing their masculinity and doing their best in some circumstances to protect women and stand up to predatory men like Russell Brand, maybe more men could have intervened and some of these episodes wouldn't have happened. And there was one particular example of this. One of the women who was assaulted by him in Los Angeles, not the woman who's accused him of rape, but another woman, she, I think, was working with him on a particular project, but in a fairly junior capacity. She was a runner or something. There were a bunch of people on Russell Brand's doorstep outside his house in Los Angeles, and she was inside, and he was sexually assaulting her, and she was screaming, screaming for him to get off, screaming for help. And as she left, she saw all these people she knew uh, on the doorstep waiting to be let into his house. And one of the men who was on the doorstep said to her years later, I've never been able to forgive myself for hearing you screaming and not, not doing anything about it, not rushing into the house to save you. 
and yeah, that that that's that's you know that's that's the flip side of the toxic masculinity coin, isn't it? If you keep telling men that if they express, if they give into their, if they express their masculine instincts, then you know that that's fundamentally toxic behaviour. They're going to be inhibited about expressing those instincts where they can help women, like the women in these stories, to protect them from predators. You know, yeah, seemingly yeah. like Russell Brand. <laughs> yeah, if true, that story is 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 heartbreaking, and he should have stepped in. And he was a coward, basically, that guy. But like you say, what can you do as a man? I mean, even in your fantasy example where the taxi driver should have gone in and punched him, you know, he'd have been done for assault. I mean, we look at look yeah. at Daniel Penny. Even if you're stopping a violent, you know, predator, you're you're now you're gonna go to prison. Or the guy dies and you for a one punch killing you got to prison. It's very hard now for men. We're still expected, if you have a girlfriend, she was like, Would you would you defend me in a in a fight? You know, you're still expected to step up as a man and defend a woman physically. At the same time, you're brutally penalized for it in society. So it is actually almost impossible to be a man now. I mean, this whole trial is, and even though, like I say, Brand's not the guy to back, in my opinion, this whole trial is does sort of make you see there is, yeah, in so many ways, an attack on men. But yeah, that is an interesting point. Men should have, where were the men? Where was the father? Men could have stood up. In a lot of cases, I don't think there was a man around. It was just a woman meeting Russell Brand. And why would there be a man? But like you say, in some cases, there was a man. And they said they were just scared of him. Um, Yes. So and people might be surprised I hadn't defended him more. I've seen people, you know, a lot of people sort of on our vague side. I mean, have you been surprised at how bold, you know, the Peterson, I mean, here am I siding with blooming lefties and Amy Nickell and people like this. It's crazy times for me. I've, there's been so many awful people who I'm tacitly siding with. I've, I've even rethought my position. I'm like, I can't be right, can I? Because these people are awful. But I like Amy, but, you know, a lot of these lefties. But I just think he's just not the guy. And I think anyone in comedy just knows too much. And someone did mess me today and say, you're totally right. Conservatives backing him is embarrassing. Have you been surprised at how bold and like the, the, the Petersons have been about this? I have been quite surprised by the people who've leapt to his defense. Um, seemingly without weighing the evidence very carefully. Um, and I suppose, you know, it, it, it reflects the cultural moment we're in that if someone in your side is attacked and um they are a dissident um uh in the same way that you are then your natural inclination is to defend them and to assume that the charges against them are trumped up because the establishment has a vested interest in discrediting them uh, so i can sort of understand why but like you i don't think this is a hill to die on um uh, you know there 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 are there are, there are other um, more obvious uh, victims of miscarriages of justice than um, Russell Brand, in my view. Um, like what, one point, uh, yeah, well, let's we go discuss that. A lot, lot of people have been accusing the left of hypocrisy because when Hugh Edwards, admittedly, wasn't accused of anything as horrendous as what Russell Brand's been accused of, but nonetheless, you know, accused of something pretty bad um not necessarily criminal but bad um the left the progressive left the ramonas leapt to his defense and said due process you know uh, uh these are just allegations they first surfaced in the sun the sun's very unreliable he didn't he's not been accused of doing anything criminal he's got mental health problems let's leave him alone until there's been some kind of due process let's not rush to judgment and yet they've all rushed to judgment in the case of Russell Brand, and there hasn't been much more in the way of due process in his case than there was in the Hugh Edwards case. 
clear case of hypocrisy. On the right, the equivalent charge is, why, why, why are you, Nick, um, uh, not willing to give Russell Brand the benefit of the doubt, not defend him, and yet give Andrew Tate the benefit of the doubt and defend him? And I can answer that. And um, I'll, I'll look forward to you dismantling my argument. But it's incredibly logical. One is because you take things on a case-by-case basis and you shouldn't be tribal. And that's what I try to do. So I just happen to believe the evidence against Tate is very flimsy. Uh, the remaining justice system is notoriously dodgy. You can just hold people in prison without telling them why. They didn't even know why. No, you know, it could never happen here. So there's, there's that. Another factor, Tate was not famous at the time. Really. He was famous later, and he, oh, even then, only internet famous to some people. Brand had untouchable regime fame. He was at a level where he could basically just point at any woman and say that one. That's, that's the level he was at. Tate was a, a guy trying his best, a working-class lad from Luton. I know Russell Brand probably working-class as well. A lad from Luton trying his best. He probably had to impress these women who had to do his best, who had to probably treat them quite reasonably in, in the way that Brand just did, didn't have to. He could just push it and do anything. So I just think it's a different case and it's far more flimsy. And I think if you're going to defend one, it has to be Tate because we see Peterson and others condemn Tate. Calvin Robinson d- d- condemn Tate, many others on the conservative side, yet immediately leap to Brand's defense. And that's what's been so strange to me. If you condemn both, I can live with that as a kind of fairly consistent stance. And if you support both on a sort of tribal ground, I can kind of live with that. I can't, and, and then, but I can't, I can't get and you might say it's, a, it's the, just simply the mirror image of my position, but I can't get condemning Tate and defending Brand because I just think it's such a, it's an odd choice because the, the, if you read the piece, the, the charges aren't, like you say, more to me more convincing that his position he had as an ultra-famous person. And I think a lot of it comes down to, one is that they, they're just mates with Brand and he's kind of in their new political thing. Shapiro says, I consider him a friend. I think he was going to speak at Jordan Peterson's event. Let's see if that happens. But he's now sort of friends with those people. But then again, you go, well, Tate's got friends in the political movement. You could easily be tribally on Tate's side. So then I come down to maybe this is a difference. It's a difference of persona. Brand's relatively cuddly, might not be quite the word, relatively fluffy persona with his sort of silly words and his silly outfits. He appeals more to the middle class. He seems ostensibly, lasciviousness aside, a kind of acceptable middle class figure in a way that Tate isn't. Tate is more like the lads I grew up with who were from council estates and stuff. I mean, not they weren't all, you know, some people were more lower middle class, some people were working class. But the point is, the banter would be very harsh. And he's openly harsh and misogynist in his banter. And if you watch some of the early Tate, he does like dark jokes about Fritzl and stuff. It's like a dark comedian, him and Tristan Tate are saying, whatever you say about Fritzl, he was the best at keeping his girls in the hope. Like they'll have like outrageous sort of jokes. And that's dark humor, but it's the kind of dark humor I'm used to. Whereas Brand doesn't really do that. He's not really explicitly misogynist. He's explicitly sort of more romantic. He, he does get a bit creepy, but he's, he kind of, it's much more, it's much more high, highbrow. Tate's basically, my theory on Tate is he's acting lowbrow, but he actually has some quite highbrow characteristics, some, some, some good characteristics of like hard work and discipline and stoicism. Brand is ostensibly highbrow with his flowery language, but his character is actually low. So this is my this is my theory that you know. So I'm actually defending Tate, the, un, the unpopular one, and he has thanked me, which is nice. He's a really nice guy. But it's I don't get this thing of condemning Tate, but supporting Brand blindly. It seems very strange. Haven't to a certain extent they've been on the same journey. Um, they started out um, as kind of lads, and they've both become a bit more mature 
and responsible. They both, well, in 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 Russell Brand's case, he's 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 now got a partner, two children, and another on the way. Um, and um, in Andrew Tate's case, he seems to have matured a little bit. Um, he's he's discovered religious faith. Um, so haven't they both been on the same journey, or do you think that Tate's character was always better than Russell Brand's? I think it was always better, and I also and he just didn't have that regime fame, as I call it. He he, where it's bound to lead to sort of weird situations where you push it and see what you get away with. Tate was entirely self-made. He had to win four kickboxing championships. I was watching some of his old fights. It's incredibly brutal kickboxing, incredibly hard. I just think to, 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 Tate. To get to where you have completely self-made like that requires a lot of character. His dad was a chess champion. There is a chess nerd at the heart of Tate. I, I just don't think he's a similar person. I think his perception is a lot worse. I think Brand's perception has been too good. And so I think they're opposite in that way. I see your, your claim that they're sort of similar. And I can easily see people saying it's hypocrisy for me. I just think it's taking it case by case. And of course, the other thing, being in comedy 11 years and hearing admittedly secondhand things, but from people I trust, I just, it's very, it's basically impossible for me to, to back brand when I know these things. Now, you might say I wasn't in the inner circle of the Tate world and didn't hear the same stories. So I've only got, gone off watching his videos for years. So there is that. So that could just be the difference that one, I have a much more personal acquaintance with, you know, so, it, but that's also goes into my evaluation. It's a mixture of, of evidence and intuition. Yeah, I guess um, one defense available to you is that, um, there has been this forensic examination um, of the charges against Russell Brand. Various supposed victims have come forward and their evidence has been carefully assessed, corroborated before it's been reproduced. In the case of Tate, he hasn't been extended you know, that level of due process. I mean, if you're condemning Tate because of things he said, things he said in his videos, hustlers you etc that's one thing but if you're going to condemn him because you think he's guilty of sex trafficking uh enslaving women um uh ripping them off then um that's not that that that, that seems to be holding him to a lower bar than russell brand is being held to because there hasn't been an equivalent investigation by teams of trained investigative journalists of the most serious charges against Andrew Tate. Do you not think there has? I mean, the BBC have just searched for absolutely everything. They've, they've done multiple pieces on him. Vice have done two documentaries. I feel there's been incredibly forensic. You know, they've gone, the Romanian authorities have gutted his entire house, taken all his cars, gone through all his phones. I think there's been an extraordinarily extensive, uh, uh, you know, just forensic analysis of Tate, every aspect of his life. I mean, Russell Brand hasn't had all his, his stuff's taken by the authorities and his hard drive gone through, has he? So I think Tate's been actually much more forensically investigated with far less result. You know, the women still defend him. We've got videos and videos of women defending him still, whereas there's no one, no one seems to have really come convincing. Some of the women that attacked him were seen writing text messages, boasting about how they're going to get him done and it's, you know, and it's, and they're acting. So it's very flimsy. I just think the and given how, I mean, but like I say, you can make the case, but I think it's incredible for someone like Peterson to be just, oh, Tate's and he, I mean, I, I, I hinted at this on a previous podcast. I didn't want to say any names. I think I'd probably say it at this point. I said that Tristan, Peterson can condemn, not even Andrew, Tristan Tate in a post on the same day he defended Russell Brand and promoted him, obviously pre these charges. And I thought it was such a strange choice to be that confident about Brand and that con- condemnatory of Tristan Tate. 
you know, but I can I can see being both. My position is perhaps you might say eccentric. But one thing, one interesting thing about my position is Tate himself has defended brand, and he did a long stream about it. And he said, "Look, I don't know what brand's done. I've never met the guy. He certainly never defended me. He was very much on the matrix side when this happened. I don't know what he's like. However, I do know the nature of a matrix attack. So he sort of separates almost the person and the methodology of the attack. And he says, "Look, if he's if he's been with all these." hundreds and thousands of women, and they've found four. You didn't ask the other, you know, however many, and, say, and who say he's a nice guy. There is one who's posted a video saying he's actually a nice guy, but they didn't include my bit. So they didn't include all those. So Tate says, look, I don't know what he's done, but this has the characteristics of a, of a hip job. I don't know if you can separate it like that, but it's interesting. I'm defending, even Tate's defending Brand. I'm saying he, sh- he shouldn't. He should only defend himself. But mm. I don't think it's much of a defense of someone accused of rape to say, what about the thousands of women he was with that he didn't rape no maybe not <laughs> no it's one of those um, things where it's kind of one strike and you're out isn't it it's like yeah i mean I, I, I do sort of agree on that but he, i suppose he might be saying that not that he didn't rape but that have he because tate did say that's that's obviously horrible i suppose it would be the ones accusing him of rape versus all the ones that would say he would never do that and don't believe he did it might be might be more the argument. yeah but yeah i see your point one argument against the idea the claim that it was a matrix attack um and we should probably move on in a second but someone <laughs> tweeted put together a twitter thread which i thought was made a, one good point anyway which is that um if you believe that these allegations are being made against tate now in the mainstream media because he's in the alt media and the mainstream media has a vested interest in discrediting an alt media competitor you're overlooking the fact that actually the story about Russell Brand doesn't just isn't just an attack on Russell Brand. It's also an attack on various mainstream media institutions for not doing more to hold him to account when he supposedly behaved in this way. The BBC, Channel Four, MTV, um, they 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 you know they've been accused of being complicit, of turning a blind eye, of not following up reports or complaints and there are now these internal investigations of one certainly at the bbc i think there's one at channel 42 i think the production company that bought endemol that produced the big brother spin-off show are now carrying out an internal investigation um so it's not as if the mainstream media comes out of this story covered in glory so if the you know, if your theory is this is the msn attacking a competitor well how do you explain the fact that actually in this case the MSN is also attacking the MSN. Yeah, that's interesting. And that sort of reminds me again of the hypocrisy of, of Channel 4. There was this meme going around Channel 4 and they've got pictures of naked education, naked alone and racing to get home, which is some naked people on a hillside and all these you know, Channel 4 awful shows. And it says, Channel 4 appalled at Russell Brand's alleged behavior as he flashed his penis at staff. I mean, yeah, it, it's the mainstream media investigating itself really, isn't it? But um, maybe that wasn't exactly your exact point, but... Um, do you want to end on it? Shall I just read one more thing? Because like you say, we've done quite a lot on it. Shall I yeah. just end by, by showing you this, which is just the the kind of epitome of, of, of what we're talking about, which was a quote from James O'Brien. This is what we're talking about. In, in 2015, he wrote, among accusations leveled at Russell Brand by an ex in yet another male hatchet job today, he once held my laptop aloft, then put it down. So he's ridiculing these hit pieces against his friend Bram. Then now he says a particularly horrible element of the brand scandal is the way some reaction demonstrates perfectly why so many victims don't come forward. There was briefly a real appetite for change after Savile and Rolf Harris. It would be interesting to wonder why it dissipated so quickly. It is just shameless. <laughs> it is shameless. 
So the media created him. The media egged him on. Now the media is going to condemn him. I don't like Bram, but I, I, I just don't. I also don't like the way it's handled. I don't know. That's um, that's where we are. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got. I, I've, I want the last word. So I, okay. I was going to just um, uh, bring up this um, tweet from uh, Owen Jones earlier today. Did you see this one? Yeah. Um, it, it was like sorry, it said. Uh, what did he say? He said, um, "Yeah." Uh, he, he's commenting on the um, heated exchange on GB News between Andrew Pierce and Beverly Turner. And he says, it's commendable Turner is challenged here, but it's beyond shocking that a channel is allowed to tolerate a presenter holding these views. Calling someone a hero after they, they're accused of rape and sexual assault will have a traumatic impact on other survivors of male violence. Now, my, my response to that was to stick a picture just a picture of Owen Jones arm in arm with Russell Brand um, at one of these Guardian events where Russell Brand was fated as recently as 2015. Uh, yeah, the 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 um, hypocrisy, the volume of the hypocrisy on the left side has been turned up to eleven during this episode. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's Russell Brand. I mean, we've got to hope our listeners are interested in that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a particularly rich topic for some reason. You wouldn't think it would be, but it just has it's crossed many different culture war lines and other lines. So maybe we'll quickly bash through these other ones then, though they are interesting. Roisin Murphy, a running story, of course, she was cancelled by a record label and then she got to number two in the charts and this was all because of her naughty views that puberty blockers for children are bad. And then the BBC seemed, seemed to delete hours of her music and cancel this show they were planning. But then they said they didn't do that. Very strangely, they claimed that it was the change was part of a rotation to align its schedule with National Poetry Day. I mean, <laughs> really, they had to cancel this show. There was meant to be a retrospective of her. And it wasn't anything to do with her being cancelled. It was just to align with National Poetry Day. I mean, chances of that, very slim in my opinion. Maybe I don't understand how the BBC works. And then they aired a song which urged listeners to kick gender-critical people. So this was a, a track called They Them by the band Dream Nails, which features the lyrics, kick turfs all day, don't break a sweat. And the BBC defences, the criticism suggested, uh, sorry, they defended the criticism, suggesting that the lyrics were ambiguous. Kick turfs all day, don't break a sweat. It's not, it's not that ambiguous, is it, really? So I'm not saying they should cancel artists, even perhaps violent art, but it is pretty ridiculous that they've cancelled Roisin Murphy promoting this other song. Pretty clear where the BBC stand. Yeah, this this falls into the category of um, expressing uh, unfashionable uh, points of view is a form of violence, but violence is a form of self-expression. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think um, you've definitely got the BBC bang to rights on hypocrisy, but as the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union, I wouldn't advocate banning artists um for including violent lyrics in their songs um and i think we, we've got into that actually um in a couple of cases where um the police have prosecuted um people um for uh they found them guilty of conspiracy um because they exchanged you know um violent rap lyrics with each other uh, and that's used as evidence to prosecute them for conspiracy to commit a violent offence, a criminal offence. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I wouldn't condemn the BBC for 
playing this track by, what is it, Dream Nails, but I would condemn them for cancelling their tribute to Roisin Murphy. But it's great that her album, I think, is her album now number one? Or is it still number two? Oh, I don't know. Last I checked, it was number two, but you've, you've, you've caught me out in the middle of the podcast and we'll get a review saying Nick doesn't know everything at all times. <laughs> Why is he better prepared? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he should know the future as well. Um, but anyway, yes, poor old Rosie. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Don't, don't, you don't believe the excuse that it was National Poetry Day, Toby? I don't believe that excuse, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, on this very much, very much on the same subject, the sort of trans subject, Graham Linehan praises bravery of the IT crowd star Richard Ayoade and Jonathan Ross for backing his new book about being cancelled for criticising trans rights movement. This is very interesting. Ayoade and, and Ross gave Linehan nice quotes and were, of course, immediately attacked. But they didn't back down, it seems, so far at the time of recording. And this might be an, you know, another turning point in the culture war. Linehan, the most despised figure in the culture war, suddenly now the hero, perhaps. And he's been through his own journey where, of course, he attacked people, including you, Toby, including Andrew Dore. Then he realized the error of his ways. He was brutally attacked by the trans side and the left. And now people are realizing John Boyne, whatever his name is, the writer apologized to him. And people are now openly, quite big figures are now openly praising his book. Is this a turning point? Um, I think it could be a turning point. I mean, I think the... um the trans rights activists um, are definitely on the back foot. Um, and um, his book, in spite of um, the tras condemning it and condemning even those who've blurbed it and trying to cancel them, I think has gone straight into the Amazon book chart at number two. Um, so, you know, um, the public seem to be on side, even if the activists aren't. Funny enough, I bumped into Graham Linehan um, uh, in Dublin at the weekend, I went over for this um, free speech event organised by Free Speech Ireland and this um, alt media Dublin uh, Irish um, uh, uh, news publishing site called Gripped. Um, it was really good. There were lots of great speakers, and we were expecting a few protesters um, outside the event, as it was very much a pro free speech event. It was to try and rally opposition to the Irish hate crime bill, which is going to impose the most draconian speech restrictions of anywhere in Europe if it's passed and it's on the verge of being passed. Um, and um, but but no, the reason there weren't any protesters is because there was also an event down the road with Posey Parker and Graham Linehan. So all the kind of Antifa wingnuts were out in force outside that event and were nowhere near the free speech event. Uh, but I bumped into Graham Linehan in a pub later that night after dinner. And um, he seemed pretty chipper. I think he'd had a good experience um, speaking at this event. He was very well pleased, unlike some equivalent events like the one in Manchester a couple of weekends ago. Um, they felt very well protected. The wingnuts were kept very much at bay and they got a rapturous reception inside the hall. And actually, as I was talking to Graham outside this pub in Dublin, on a Saturday night, people kept coming up to him and wanting to shake his hand. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, fans of Father Ted, which is obviously huge in Ireland. Um, it was also people who take his side um, in the kind of culture war. Um, so that was good to see. And he seemed, you know, he seemed in quite a good mood. All right. Good to see. Yeah. Great guy. I've, I've worked with him on headliners. And um yeah, I couldn't find that about the Amazon charts, but there is something on, on X here saying with pre-orders alone, his memoir sits at number one in the performing arts category and second in all books on Amazon UK's bestseller list. So, okay. so it may well be true. 
Um, well done, Graham. I'm glad he's coming through. I mean, he's been through an awful lot. And I think when I said the tide's turning, I'm not saying we're suddenly going to win the culture war, but it's a, it's something anyway. I always like to take the positives and not be too black-pilled about it. You know me, pretty upbeat guy. Um, <laughs> do you want to quickly do this bully story, Toby? Uh, yes. So um, the uh, so this story is about um, uh, the um, a, a dog breed called the XL Bully. American. Uh, which is an American crossbreed. Um, and um, I found this stat actually on Wikipedia. So between 2021 and 2023... Um, the XL bully was responsible for more than 50% of people who've been killed by dogs in the UK. Wow. Um, and there was this horrific video of this XL bully running amok on the streets of Birmingham and attacking various men and a 12-year-old girl. And it was like a, a scene from a post-apocalyptic Netflix series or something. I mean, it was just horrendous. And um, Rishi Sunak, partly on the back of this video, he actually referenced the video in his statement, has announced that um, they're going to ban the XL bully under the Dangerous Dogs Act. Um, first, they're going to have to define it because it's not yet defined in law, and then they're going to ban it. And that was, interestingly enough, that was um, uh, a, a group called the, what are they called? They're called the, um, uh, I should find it, I've written about it in The Spectator this week. They're called... Um, uh, the um, uh, uh, yeah, she's the, the the Dog Control Coalition, uh, which is a kind of um, coalition of the RSPCA, the Kennel Club, various other pro dog organisations. Um, they've condemned banning the breed on the grounds that that won't stop the attacks. So they said for thirty two years the Dangerous Dogs Act has focused on banning types of dog, and yet has coincided with an increase in dog bites. And the recent deaths show this approach isn't working. But actually, it's quite wrong to say that um, the Dangerous Dogs Act exclusively focuses on banning types of dog. Yes, it does ban types of dog, but it also um, uh, introduced a new criminal offence whereby owners of dogs can be prosecuted. This is any dogs, not just dogs classified as banned. Owners of dogs can be prosecuted for failing to keep their dogs under proper control. And I know this because um, my wife was cautioned under the Dangerous Dogs Act after our Hungarian Vizsla Leo um, bit an Ocado delivery man um, who was um, delivering something to our next door neighbor's house. So my wife came back from the park one day. She opened the boot of the car to let Leo out. Um, and he spotted this Ocado delivery man in the next door driveway, leapt over the wall and gave him what I want to say was a little nip. It certainly wasn't a ferocious attack like the kind we saw in the Birmingham video. Um, and um, But the guy fell to the ground, clutching his leg, started moaning, um, insisted an ambulance be called and the police be called. And the ambulance drivers examined his, um, quote, injury, unquote, and um, decided that he didn't need to go to accident and emergency um and um the police also took one look at his injury and initially dismissed it um and um but then the police officer who told my wife she had nothing to worry about and he didn't think any criminal offense had been committed and the guy was making a song and dance about nothing uh after he left our house spoke to his sergeant came back and said having spoken to his sergeant he was going to have to take leo in for observation and we thought that meant 
you know, for a couple of hours just to make sure he wasn't an out of control, dangerous dog. Um, and actually, that was the last we saw of him for about four months. And my four children, who were quite young at the time, about seven years ago, uh, went completely spare worrying about Leo. And the police had given us this number to call. Uh, but if you called the, to find out, you know, when we could retrieve him, but if you called this number, it just said, you got this message saying, don't call us, we'll call you. Please don't call this number again. Um, and uh, and it was really traumatic. Um, uh, and it was over Christmas, which made it worse. Um, and... Um, and then my wife was summoned to a police station in Southall and was told that there was sufficient evidence to bring a prosecution against her under the Dangerous Dogs Act. But if she admitted to the crime, she would get off with a caution. Uh, but we realized after she'd been cautioned that that really meant we couldn't keep Leo um, because if he did it again, and you know he was quite a high-spirited dog, quite hard to train, um, like Hungarian Vizslas are quite large hunting dogs, quite you know, high spirited. Um, if he did it again, she'd probably receive a custodial sentence. You know, she was looking at maybe 12 weeks in Holloway um, for being a repeat offender. So I found this Hungarian Vizsla breeder and we arranged to meet the breeder at the police station where we went to pick him up. And we just handed him straight over and we didn't tell the kids about it until afterwards because we thought they'd want to go and say goodbye to him. And that could lead to distressing scenes in which they clinged on to him and refused to let go. So we told them afterwards what had happened and why we'd made the decision. And they were absolutely convinced, and I think are still convinced to this day, that this was a white lie they were being told by their parents to protect them from the the news that actually Leo had been destroyed. Um, and I, I still can't persuade them that he's, he still lives to this day. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a pretty bad experience. Um, and I don't think the um, Dangerous Dogs Act needs to be made more draconian, um, or, or that it's not sufficient as it stands to, 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 to enable the authorities to prosecute owners of XL bullies. Um, it is an incredibly draconian piece of legislation. Well, what a shocking story of heartbreak and violence. Um, I mean, of course, the, the, the nipping the postman, that's just what dogs do, isn't it? That's archetypal. That's, that's cartoonish. I mean, a little nip on the leg. That's what postman, I'm not saying it's great for postman, but they, they, it's part of the job. So he seems like he, when he went down so heavy, he seems like he saw you coming. He's like, this is Toby Young. I'll get some compensation here. He's got some money. And uh, uh, you know I, what I mean? I, I, yeah. He's been cancelled five there, times, but not like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, maybe he had kind of, um, maybe he was thinking about the potential compensation um, if he exaggerated the injury. But, uh, you know, or, or maybe he was just, you know, a very sensitive man who was frightened of dogs. I don't know. I imagine if you are in a cardo delivery man, um, you know, being bitten by a dog is one of the hazards of the profession. And maybe you do develop a kind of phobia of of dogs. Um, So maybe it was a completely legitimate reaction, but at the time, according to my wife, I wasn't there. It felt as though he was, um, he was wildly exaggerating what had happened to him. And seemingly the police and the paramedics agreed. Very sad. Would you go full coal then or, because there was a disagreement on this on headliners about some people want an immediate call of all these American XL bullies. And some people say what's being proposed here by amnesty that have an amnesty period that um, it's not by amnesty, sorry, but an amnesty period that will last roughly one year after which there'll be an outright ban. Which side are you on? Well, what are they supposed to do during the amnesty period? Um, 
Uh, I mean, if they're going to be banned in a year's time, I, I, I thought the question, I thought the the issue was should they, can they apply be... to keep their dogs during that period if they fulfil certain conditions? Right, but if, if if the dogs haven't misbehaved during that year, do they then get to keep them in perpetuity, or do they Sounds have to like hand that. them over after the year, even if they behaved well? Yeah, if it was, was an amnesty, that that would it would um, that would make sense. Um, it's like the extant yeah, I... dogs can continue, but no new ones can come in. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I, 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 I'm now the owner of it. We've now got a much smaller dog. I mean, a really small dog um, who looks like a teddy bear and wouldn't say boo to a goose. Say Cavapoo Shon, uh, called Mali, um, short for Malinki, which means tiny princess in Czech. Um, mm. My wife's half Czech, um, and I do. I, 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 Mali was once attacked by a red setter. And um, I had to intervene extremely quickly in order to save Mally from basically being savaged by this this other dog, who wasn't on a lead, um, and it was on it was in Wormwood Scrubs, um, and I sort of whisked Mally up off the ground just as this dog was attaching its jaws to her and turned around and the dog kind of jumped up on me um but um so i thought of maybe because of my my protective feelings my fears for for mally looks like a scooby snack as far as these dangerous dogs are concerned i would recommend instantly banning the xl bully yeah although as you say a bit of a hypocritical stance because you're sort of a perpetrator of of dog <laughs> violence um but, but we yes. lost our dog yeah, it's sad that you lost your dog. I, I never recovered from the loss of our dog because he was he was put down. I mean, back in those days, you, you, you people didn't treat their dogs quite the same. You know, we know when there's like extensive treatment that's very expensive, it was a lot to do. And my mom was like, okay, we'll have to do all this expensive treatment. My dad just said no. So that was that. It was quite brutal. You know, nowadays, do- dogs are basically like family members and people will spend thousands mm. on them. Back then mm. in the North, it was just like something wrong with your dog. That was just, that was it basically. <laughs> They didn't it was more like treat more like a horse. Did, he, or a, did he attack a sheep? No, he was just ill. But my dad didn't think it was worth the expense right. to save him. Right. So anyway, you're a dad. I so guess maybe you can. Yeah, <laughs> people have dog insurance now, don't they, to pay the veterinary bills? But yeah, that's what we not, needed. Not everybody does. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Um, okay, it was a bit of a different topic for. Well, it was a cultural war topic in some ways. Um, Toby, do you want to quickly do our first advert, perhaps? Yeah. So this is an ad from our loyal sponsor. Thor Holt. Um, Caroline from Melbourne was in a career and life funk, but she connected with Thor on LinkedIn. And after her initial free coaching call, she said, Thor, thanks so much for the call. You really lifted my spirits. If you're going through a challenge, you're at a career crossroads, facing business challenges, or stressed out about the state of the world, call Thor. A less cool version of Harvey Keitel's legendary cleanup man, Mr. Wolf of Pulp Fiction fame, Thor will help you deal with your situation no matter how blood splattered or hopeless you feel. Listen to what Diane from Aberdeen said. I called Thor at a time where the negativity was pouring in and the ship had lost its moorings. With coaching on various work and mindset mindset tasks, a bit of therapy, and several reminders to find the positives for me, I will always be grateful for the reset, and I will recommend Thor to others without hesitation. Stop numbing yourself with YouTube or doom scrolling on Twitter. Instead, WhatsApp Thor on plus four four oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three. That's plus four four oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three 
Well, you can connect with Thor on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. Sign up for his private Substack on thorholt.substack.com. And if you do that, don't forget to check your spam to make sure you receive the Substack notifications. All right. Thanks to Thor. And now should we go over? Oh, let's do, yeah, let's do this. Let's go over and do our occasional section. It's Across the Pond. So a couple of Across the Ponds this week, and uh, hopefully we've got a new jingle in there as well. Thanks for that. And um, so it's really really interesting. There was two similar stories. I say interesting. It's kind of salacious and People might say this is lowbrow, and this is Nick's lowbrow influence on the podcast. But the first one was the Virginia Democrat, Susanna Gibson, who's in a key state house race. And uh, she she was done for, not done for, but it was, it was found that she'd shared pornographic videos on a site called Chatterbait. Not one I've been on, but good to know. And um, she called this an illegal invasion of her privacy. And this was obviously a bit of a scandal. You're a Democrat. You know, well, it's the kind of thing Democrats do, but... There's a video going around on X, pretty uh, explicit stuff. She's there with her husband, and they're getting tips for sort of, you know, vaguely sexual stuff, and they're not really wearing clothes. So pretty clear what that is. So it's a question of can you have someone like that uh, winning a race for, you know, winning an election in America? I don't know. And then similarly, perhaps not quite as bad, if you want to say bad, was Lauren Boebert, who's a Republican, who was kicked out of the Beetlejuice musical for recording, vaping, and frankly groping with her boyfriend, who she was wearing a, a very nice dress. I mean, she looked good, let's be honest. But they were doing stuff, Toby, that you would only tweet about. I mean, it was really, it was shocking stuff. It was some definite heavy petting going on. And the people's argument was, this is a child's musical. What are you doing, doing heavy petting? Then she was kicked out, and she seemed to put a finger up at the security. All a bit much. But it turned out her boyfriend was a Democrat called Quinn Gallagher, a sort of private citizen, but a Democrat voter who owns a, a bar. And, and that was a scandal in itself that she was with a Democrat. She's just broken up with, from a marriage, which, you know, so now she's there groping Democrats or being groped by them at Beetlejuice. And then another development from today, she's now dumped the guy because she didn't realize he was a Democrat and obviously looks bad for her. She says, yeah, yeah, we had a fun time, but I, I need to check political affiliations in future. What is going on across the pond, Toby? Yeah, it seems like um, their politicians are a lot racier than ours. I mean, you know, um, I, I'm trying to recall the um, last juicy sex scandal in British politics. Um, uh, you know, I, I well, although interestingly enough, it been a um, curry. Yes, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, when um, I remember hearing the rumor that the Sunday Times was working on a major story um, before the Russell Brand story dropped. And there was speculation before we knew who the story was about that Russell Brand was a cover story. Like, yeah, the Sunday Times wanted to protect their story before it broke. So they put out this cover story that it was about Russell Brand because everyone would believe that because his reputation so bad. Um, but actually, it was a story about a politician and quite a senior politician and probably either a member of the cabinet or an ex-cabinet member. So that led to a lot of speculation, you know, on WhatsApp, in my Twitter DMs, about who who it might be. And in the course of that speculation, I learned a lot of pretty hair-raising stories about um, 
uh, well, ex-members of the cabinet. Obviously, I can't share any of them with you uh, or with our listeners. But um, yet there are some sex scandals percolating away out there, but haven't yet broken, but may in due course. Do you ever feel conflicted having been counted yourself about sort of, you know, I saw you on Twitter going or X going, hey, who's this story about? You know, because you are a journalist. But do you ever feel conflicted like, oh, I don't want to be part of like outing or cancelling a person? Well, I think um, the reason I set up the Free Speech Union um, was because I wanted to, um, I wanted to create a resource, which is the resource that I felt wasn't there, but which I really needed when I was targeted for cancellation. Um, so I hope I, I hope I, I, I don't encourage others to cancel people or um, get involved in irresponsible speculation. Um, uh, I guess, you know, I don't think that was quite a story. I didn't name anyone. I didn't hint at who it might be. Um, I just said I'd heard that the Sunday Times were prepping for a big story. But I guess it inevitably does lead to quite a lot of speculation, the kind of subtweets. Yeah, fair enough. And one little other wrinkle on this Lauren Bobert story. I've just seen she could face sex crime charge on the Colorado's lewdness law. So Colorado has a lewdness law, although Libs of TikTok points out there was a Denver Pride Festival featuring a performer singing about oral sex while another acted out sex on stage. So it'll be the usual hypocrisy. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was pretty minor, this Lauren Bobert thing, I thought. I thought the worst crime was that it was a Democrat she was with rather than a little <laughs> bit of touching at the, at the musical. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, the fact that the Democrat, the Democrat candidate um, – uh, has been exposed as someone who essentially had sex with her husband in return for tips on Chatterbait. Um, that doesn't seem to have hold her political career below the waterline. Um, and you would have thought that, I mean, we always think of America as being more prurient than the UK. But I would have thought that, you know, if, if a, a Labour Party candidate um, was exposed for having done something like that here on, say, OnlyFans, that would end their career, wouldn't it? I know what you mean. I think of America, I mean, America has been Christian until lately, so you think of it as, I think of it as more Christian and more uptight. But actually, you're right. I yeah. feel like a Democrat now, which well, she is seemingly getting away with it, yeah, they probably can get away with more than than, than anyone in our, our But our politics and our country has just become sort of so pathetic that no one can get away with anything. I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, I'm thinking out loud here, but I suppose America's the same. I don't know why she's got away with that, really. I think Democrats can get away with a lot more than Republicans. But yeah, over here, true. I think no one can really get away with anything because it's just so scrutinized. And we're kind of a bit pathetic in a lot of ways now. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, Chris Bryant, he got away with... Um, well, we better get this right because otherwise he'll sue us. But <laughs> didn't he post a picture, um, a naked picture, um, or was it a picture? I've of him seen in a his picture underpants? of him in his wife fronts. In his wife fronts. In his wife fronts. Yeah, on like uh, on a gay dating app or something. Um, yeah, not naked. My learned friends. He was in his wife fronts. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess that's that. Did that, no, yeah. th this was a private yeah, picture he, sent to me? I was talking about. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's awful, anyway, Brian. Aside from that, he's just an awful person. I, can we say awful, that? He, Is that liable? He got, but, he got, um, no. he got okay. away with it anyway. Allegedly, he's awful. Yeah, he got away with that. You're right. I mean, I suppose it was Chris Pincher. Didn't fare so well, did he? Could have been his name, but he didn't fare so well. But yeah, you're yeah, right. We true. need a good old proper proper sex scandal, don't we? I mean, I feel like well, obviously Matt Hancock is a glaring one you're missing. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that 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 that's true. And I guess is that 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 did end his career. Um, I, I suppose you say that he's the, still singing Ken songs on TikTok, and he well, still went in true. the jungle. And it, <laughs> and it is political career. But I think for him, it wasn't the fact that he was caught on camera snogging and groping a woman. It was the fact that that woman wasn't his wife, and he is was at the time married with two children. But in addition, it seemed to be a breach of the rules he was asking everyone else to observe. That's why it was. That's why it destroyed his political career. That's absolutely true. Of course, and I made that point a lot of the time. They were they were desperate. The, the the political class were and the sort of media class were desperate to say it's not the fact he cheated on his wife. He can totally do whatever he wants, man. It's the fact that he went against the rules, the sacred lockdown rules. Yeah. You know, it's so weird. They're actually lining up to say it's fine to cheat on your wife. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's all this, the same as a Russell Brand thing, all hypocrisy. All right, well, that was Across the Pond. And now let's go to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones, the editor of The Daily Skeptic, to talk about some of our bigger stories of the week. Will, you wanted to kick off this week talking about this new declaration from the UN, which I believe is going to be issued tomorrow, Wednesday, the 20th of September. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? That's right. Yeah, this is very current news. This is a new declaration that the UN is uh, proposing and to declare tomorrow, Wednesday, 20th of September, is titled Political Declaration of the United Nations General Assembly High-Level Meeting on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness and Response. So that's a full title. And it's going to be made by government representatives. So they're going to be doing it on the behalf of our government and governments around the world. And it's a so-called silent procedure and that means that states will be assumed to be supporting it unless they say otherwise. So it's an opt-out, not an opt-in. So they're really pushing this through. And this declaration is all about setting up the new pandemic treaty, the United Nations Pandemic Treaty, which involves the World Health Organization, of course, and the amendments to the International Health regulations, governing pandemics, lots of problems with these documents, with these changes, as we've discussed a number of times before in this slot, as you know, Toby, but most worryingly is the effective transfer of legal authority over pandemics to the World Health Organization and to its chief, because the guidance, the so-called guidance that uh, the World Health Organization gives to states during pandemics will no longer be just a recommendation. It's uh, not not really guidelines, really, but will be mandatory under under international law, so legal authority effectively over response. These are all worrying developments. We've talked about a number of times before. This juggernaut continues to roll on. And of course, there's constant demands for more money for the World Health Organization and for all these projects, just really ramping up this global pandemic response industry. Will, how does it fit with the WHO's pandemic treaty? Is it that that treaty by itself needs this complementary declaration in order to come into force or 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 what so toby the main aim of the declaration is to back the proposed international health regulation and treaty so it's basically a, a step in that direction just setting out the kind of preliminary aims and what they're proposing to do with it and to just ensure that everyone continues to be on board, setting the stage for the changes, really. This isn't binding in the same way that those will be, but it's a stepping stone. Okay, so this particular declaration won't interfere with the UK's parliamentary sovereignty in the same way that some people think the pandemic treaty will, although we can get into whether it will in a second, but it's um, there's no suggestion 
that this UN declaration will in any way transfer sovereignty from the British Parliament to the UN or to the WHO at this juncture? No, not this declaration in itself. No, this is a kind of a political statement. It's setting out an intention. It's a way of keeping the support and bolstering the support for these instruments that are coming down the line. Okay. So let me ask a follow-up question, Will. And, And I say this just because I think it's really important to be clear about exactly what the WHO pandemic treaty does and doesn't do and does and doesn't bind the British Parliament to. For the same reason, I wanted to clarify whether or not the Energy Bill created any new criminal offences in our discussion about that last week. And I set out Lee Anderson's rebuttal of the claim that it did create these new criminal offences. People have interpreted that. I've had a bit of feedback as me defending the Energy Bill because, you know, I need to stay in with the Tory party, not upset the establishment. That wasn't the reason for my bringing up Lee Anderson's defence. My reason was I think it's very important to be as accurate as we can be when discussing these horrific developments, because if we over-egg, if we exaggerate, then that enables the defenders of these international and national legislative initiatives to claim that we're misinformed or we're trafficking in misinformation, we're being alarmist, we've misunderstood the legislation in question. So just to be clear about the WHO pandemic treaty, I talked about this with Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he said that whilst the changes would be binding in international law, assuming the UK is a signatory to the treaty, that wouldn't mean they were necessarily binding in domestic law. So Parliament's supremacy isn't fettered by international law. Parliament can ignore international law if it wants to. I mean, politically, of course, that would be very difficult. But he sees no reason why Parliament should be bound by the pandemic treaty in domestic law. And domestic law takes priority over international law. That was his view, if I'm summarising it correctly. Is that your understanding too? Sure. I mean, is, is the status of international law versus domestic law, as Jacob Rees-Mogg explained and as you have set out, it's legally binding and it's legal authority because it is international law that is binding under. There is a distinction with domestic law. And so Parliament could ignore it. And by could ignore it, we presume there would be no valid legal challenge because there isn't a court that will enforce the international law on the United Kingdom government. So in a way, it's it's saying it's law, but it hasn't got teeth and we can ignore it if we want. But as you say, politically, and some would say if you take international law seriously, ethically, um, although that's an interesting question, it's very, very difficult. But certainly politically, it's very, very difficult to ignore it because you basically have to set your face against the legal commitments you, you have made as a country and a state under international treaties and laws. And the question is, why have you made those commitments under international law if your intention is to ignore them? Why are you not just acting consistently and also setting up traps for your enemies to get you by basically saying, you, why are you not following what the government has signed up to in that international treaty? So, yeah. Yeah, it's toothless in that sense, because there aren't courts, as Napoleon would say, there are no armies to enforce international law in that way. There's no courts that will force the issue. But that doesn't mean that it's um, that it's a good idea. Okay, understood. Next story you want to talk about, Will, is a piece on Substack by Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan about why it is that the Cochrane review into the efficacy 
of masking has been at least, well, certainly been attacked, including by the chief executive of the Cochrane Review, uh, as well as the New York Times and various others. Do you want to tell us about that particular Substack post. That's right. And of course, it's not just a Substack post, but also uh, republished in full on the Daily Skeptic. And I should say actually with the previous story that was, we were talking about that because we posted an excellent post by Dr. David Bell, a medic who's had previous involvement with the World Health Organization and really knows what he's talking about. And in this case, again, it's a post on the Daily Skeptic, which was first published, as you say, on Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan's Substack site. They're called Trust the Evidence, very appropriately. And what they've basically done in this story is they've set out the really worrying story and the really alarming story, frankly, about the the way that they were treated, and Tom Jefferson in particular, as lead author of the famous or infamous, if you're on the other side of the the fence on this, Cochrane Review. The official title is Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses. We know it as the Mask Cochrane Review, which famously found no good quality evidence that masks reduce the incidence of respiratory infection, including COVID-19, but it applies to all you know, flu-like illnesses. And really, to say they found no evidence is underselling it, because there have been a number of randomised controlled trials. They didn't just find no evidence that they worked. They really, they found evidence that it didn't work, because of course, if you run a number of trials, of good quality trials, that test the question, does it work? and you find that it doesn't work, then that's not just finding no evidence, then that's finding evidence doesn't work as well. So obviously, this is really challenging the narrative. This is really not what the politicians have been saying since April 2020, really, where we know famously they were they were anti-mask, a lot of most health authorities uh, in February and March 2020, but from about April 2020, really, we, the pro-masking came in. So it's really contrary to the political agenda. So Tom Jefferson, he's just he's just done this this incredible setting out in exhaustive detail the the story of how they were mistreated by their own editors at the Cochrane Review, uh, going against, as he says, the founding principles by undermining the study, not promoting it, delaying it for months on end in 2020. It's a review that's actually been published way back in 2006, first published. This is a, this was an update just due to come out as the mask issue was hotting up for for COVID. The organisation delayed this for months. On end and in the meantime inexplicably delayed it, i should say and in the meantime filled that space with poor quality studies that backed up the the now official political narrative so fascinating inside track on this very real and clear uh, form of political censorship on science and and evidence because they didn't find what the politicians and the politically active scientists wanted them to find and as an addendum to this story, Will, um, we also ran a story about a British Airways pilot who was banned from flying for refusing to wear a face mask. Well, no, he was sacked rather by British Airways for refusing to wear a face mask. He then took BA to the employment tribunal claiming he'd been discriminated against and he lost. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, this is a pretty de- pretty depressing story, this one. I mean, the employment tribunals are a bit of a law unto themselves, and hopefully this will be appealed. This was a, a pilot who found himself very panicked about the idea of having to wear a mask uh, when returning to work after the furlough in 2020, and claimed exemption was refused, and so was not allowed to fly 
And so he then sued for discrimination. And uh, so he claimed that it was a belief, a philosophical belief in breathing freely, you know, reasonable claims. You might think that you have a belief that you should be allowed to breathe the free air, but a novel claim, though, it's not one that people have made before. So it was a challenge to uh, present this. But the shocking thing, in my view, from this story was that the employment tribunal found that his belief in that couldn't be a protected philosophical belief under the Equality Act because it potentially infringed on the fundamental human rights of others who could catch a disease through his refusal to wear a face covering. Which And what this amounts to is, is a supposed fundamental human right to expect or require other people to wear a face mask over their face just in case you will catch their germs. I mean, quite an incredible claim that the, the, you have this fundamental human right. Funda- human rights are meant to be about your personal autonomy, protecting you from the overreach of government. As we know, that's where they originated. You know, your human rights to life, to to liberty, to freedom of speech, to freedom of assembly. These are uh, to freedom of prop- property and freedom of association. These are our, these are human rights. The idea that you have a fundamental human right to expect people around you to wear a filthy, useless rag over their face in case you catch their germs is just a complete abuse of the concept and I really hope this won't stand uh, that there'll be an appeal and this won't stand because um, completely ludicrous and will the final story you wanted to talk about this week is a story by Chris Morrison in which he is essentially criticizing a rather alarmist story on the BBC news website reporting that Antarctica sea ice was at a record low. Uh, and needless to say, Chris uh, has taken issue with with that report. Absolutely. Yeah, this is the, um, the news. Lots of uh, feverish headlines this week about a mind-blowing record low winter area of Antarctica sea ice. Uh, lots of coverage on the BBC, as you might expect. Chris points out that this record low is only for the uh, for the very short period since 1980 when the NASA Nimbus the current satellite system came into being so very short range and this is significant because as Chris notes that it has been generally known in scientific circles that early NASA Nimbus satellites showed even lower winter levels uh, in 1966 in other words you don't have to go back very long at all we already have a significantly lower reading for this particular measure just back in the 1960s within early, the early satellite era. So it doesn't even stand up on that basis. Now, it is a record low for the last 40 years uh, from the 1980s, according to the, the data we have. But as Chris points out, this is a measure where there is a lot of variation. And in fact, one of the key people who has uh, who was quoted by the BBC, Dr. Walter Mayer, Mayer, who has been getting very excited about this, in fact, just seven years ago, as Chris points out, just back in 20. 2016, he was actually saying something completely different. He says that even in the passive microwave record available since 1979, for the Antarctic, you see these seesaws where the ice concentrations go up and down. So extreme high or extreme low are not that unusual. And what the Nimbus data tell us is there's variability in the Antarctica sea ice that's larger than any we had seen from the passive microwave data. So seven years ago, he was pretty relaxed about um, extreme extreme highs and lows. He says that's actually pretty normal to get these outliers. They're not indicative of a trend. And in fact, as Chris uh, also points out, the trend in Antarctica has been basically flat for the past well, many decades. Uh, there's no real, there's no real record of a reduction in Antarctic sea ice, um, which is which is in line with what Walter, Doctor uh, Mayer, was saying 
uh, in well, seven years ago. So the idea now that they are claiming, and in fact, Walter Mayer is now claiming that this is evidence of some kind of a mind-blowing catastrophic trend actually uh, is, is just not supported by the data and in fact isn't supported by what he himself was saying just a few years ago. Okay. Thank you very much, Will Jones, with our top stories of the week. That was Will and Toby. Now it's back to me and Toby. And let's go and do what I like to call everyone's favourite section, though there are so many good sections now. But of course, I'm talking about Peak Woke. So, Toby, for Peak Woke, you felt we should start with the Theresa May story, which is almost a story in its own sake, but is also a peak woke because it is about wokeness. And the headline in the Telegraph was that Theresa May said she's woke and proud. And I was being all Mr. Nuance again. I've been so nuanced this week, guys. I was out there saying, actually, she didn't really say it. She was given a definition of woke that was impossible to disagree with, the sort of old-fashioned definition. And like, would you agree with that? And then she goes, well, I suppose that I would agree with. And then they followed up and said, so would you say you're woke and proud? And she sort of laughs and goes, yeah. And she says, yes, like this quick, yeah, like that. And that's like what they've gone with. And they've gone with Theresa May says she's woke and proud. Not really. She laughingly agreed with something that was impossible to not agree with. However, I will say she was typically wet. She certainly didn't take the opportunity to speak out against wokeness in a, in a robust way. She sort of laughingly, timidly went along with it, which is kind of what we'd expect from Theresa May. So not quite the headline, but not amazing either. No, I, 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 I saw the video clip that um, the Woke and Proud uh, quote was seemingly based on, um, or rather the seeming quote was based on. And I agreed with your exegesis. Um, she didn't actually say, I'm woke and proud. Um, and as you say, the definition of woke she was presented with was a very anodyne, hard to disagree with point of view, um, not what we'd recognise as woke. Um, so yeah, I, I thought she was unfairly condemned for that. Um, and people should bear in mind that um, you know um, the subjects of newspaper articles don't always write the headlines, or never write the headlines, and things ascribed to them in the headlines aren't things they've always said. Very true. Another big Pete woke this week was this song from Horrible Histories on CBBC that was going around. I don't know if you saw this. So there's a black guy singing this song and he says things like, before Harold lost at Hastings, black people played their part. And there's these pictures of like black people in like centurions outfits and all these kind of different, you know, like Zelig just there throughout history. For 10,000 British years, some Brits have looked like me is another thing he says. And people are saying, where are all these black people in history? Isn't this misinformation from the BBC? The most cringe part of the video, and today the future's hopeful, Rashford and Stormzy light the way. That's when you know it's the most cringe-centrist <laughs> dad, Ramona Bollocks, like the most Lineker-esque, turgid, Rashford and Stormzy light the way. What are you teaching these children? Oh. And he says, you may not have been told, we have been here from the start. Before these aisles were British, black people played their part. Were, was there that, were there all these black people, Toby, for billions of years in in, in Britain, like the dinosaurs? No, I, I've I've you know I've I've read some of the um, scholars um, who've debunked this claim, and their evidence seems pretty persuasive. Um, it's you know it's 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 an odd kind of it's odd ground on which to pitch your tent if you're an anti-racist. I mean, you know, um, frankly, I don't care if black people arrived in our country five minutes ago. Um, that's not a reason to say they have less right to be here than us. I mean, you know, it's like conceding too much to 
the white supremacists to say, well, if they're right, and um, the British people have always been a white race, then maybe racism would be justified and we should kick all the black people out. But lo, actually, there were black people here 10,000 years ago, so they're wrong and therefore they should be allowed to stay. It's like, that's not the argument. And to imagine that it is, is to concede far too much to your opponents. Mm, good point. Good point. Apart from it being mega cringe, which was my point, your point was more <laughs> nuanced. Um, would you like to posit a peak? Well, yeah. Toby? So, um, yeah, there, there were quite a few this week. There always are. Um, there was um, there was the um, women's health writer um, who was censored uh, for saying that uh, women have periods, uh, and she was censored on a website. Uh, which uh, promotes always, which is you know a, 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 a woman's sanitary product. Uh, so, so that that seemed particularly egregious. And then there was the General Medical Council recommending that doctors don't use um, trans exclusionary language. Like mother, um, also like mother. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then there was the Edinburgh Botanic Garden. Uh, which is um, uh, insisting that all its staff have anti-racism training, uh, so they get to recognise, I guess, which are the racist plants in the Edinburgh Botanic Garden. Um, but probably the most egregious peak woke um, was um, uh, Braun have um, used a trans model uh, to advertise their um, uh, trimmers, their latest trimmer. Um, and this this is a this is um, a, a, a trans model naked from the waist up with two very visible mastectomy scars. Uh, so it seemed to be endorsing self mutilation by teenagers, and somehow linking its endorsement of self mutilation to the promotion of a product. Um, because it's so captured, I suppose, by trans rights dogma, but pretty shocking that you know this kind of um, that this that that you know women um, cutting off their breasts, permanently disfiguring themselves, um, uh, uh, is being normalised by brawn. That's amazing because I, I wrote a tweet a while ago about how there's no brands left for men we can use. We're just going to all have massive beards. Because there's so many. There was Gillette we can't use, right, because of the, the advert that hated men. Then what was the recent one where we – what was the recent Razor one where they just went mental and we just had to stop using it? Can you remember? Oh, yeah, there was one. There was, there one. was one, wasn't there? Um, it was another woke Razor company. Was was it Harry's or was it not Harry's? Well, maybe uh, it was Harry's, yeah. I've got a vague anyway. feeling it was it was Harry's. But uh, we already can't, can't use Gillette and this whatever this other company is. Now – we can't use brawn. What are we going to do? I mean, luckily I used to use a beard trimmer, so I'm okay for now. But um, yeah, I think it was it was Harry's razors who had a, a trans man brackets female to promote their razor set. So they they've already done that. So yeah, it's Harry's gone, brawn gone, Gillette gone. I suppose it's Jeremy's razors, isn't it? Daily Wire. Do you think that um, you know the beard used to be a, a symbol of masculinity? Still is, um, mate. <laughs> but now that it's associated with, um, uh, you know, with with urban hipsters, and you know, if if you see a man with a kind of big long black beard, I think your natural assumption is that they're probably woke. It's like the male equivalent of having purple hair. 
um, and often goes hand in hand with tattoos and pierced ears and the rest of it. It's the kind of thing you'd expect to encounter at a woke music festival uh, in a bar in, um, you know, Hoxton. Um, well, it, 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 it's sort of, it's, it's, it's the opposite of, um, uh, but no disrespect to you, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But there's an interesting wrinkle there because Gavin McInnes was the godfather of hipsterism. He, he created that when he created, co-founded Vice. And now he's the founder of the Proud Boys and sort of the most hated by the hipster types. So you could even argue, actually, when you are doing a hipster look, you are coming from Gary McInnes, who is now called far right. So you could argue it's still, it's, but I know it's kind of yeah. changed. But another, but you, another, your beard isn't a hipster beard. Your beard no. is a kind of uh, is kind of trimmed, sculpted, obviously uh, just to tended hide my face. quite carefully. It's not um, tended that whereas... carefully at all, but it's just to hide, you know, the worst aspects of my face. But <laughs> but, but um, no, I know what you mean. It's not a big lustrous hipster beard with beard oils, but. I think you can always tell, though, Toby, the, the two people that have big beers out are hipster lefties, as you've said. But if they're much more built, you still get those, you know, a man who probably has a book out on masculinity and he's probably lifting heavy and he probably has a Twitter account talking about how you should sun your balls to up your testosterone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they also have big beards. I don't know if you're familiar with that okay, particular yeah, subculture, yeah. but it's the ultra masculine <laughs> subculture has it will right. still have a big beard. Okay. But so will the, the ultra feminine culture. That's my take. Um, there was another one, Apple ad. It's quite hard to describe on a podcast, but there was the Apple ad where they, they all had Mother Nature, who was, of course, a black woman, and they all petitioned her for how carbon neutral Apple was, and she chastised them, and it was just extremely cringe. Did you see that? I did. Um, and um, I've been a lifelong um, Apple devotee. I'm a brand loyalist. I bought my first Apple product in 1987. Was um, that a 2GS? And, and, no, I think it was. I think it was. It was. A, it was a, a, a Mac Plus. Okay. And um, I still got it in the attic. Maybe worth something now. Anyway, um, so I've been in the Apple ecosystem really since 1987, and my loyalty has never wavered until I saw that ad, and um, I was horrified. I mean, up and up until seeing that ad, I'd made up my mind to buy the new iPhone 15, even though. It seems like a bit of a damp squib. It's made of titanium, but otherwise is indistinguishable, seemingly from the fourteen. Um, but seeing that ad, seeing Apple harness itself to the kind of climate emergency agenda, and in such a cringe-inducing way, I, I, I almost thought, my God, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go Android. <laughs> Come to me, Galaxy. Um, but in the end, I didn't. I have bought the iPhone 15. Well, that was a, a brief rebellion, <laughs> but I'm sure it was heartfelt for those 30 seconds where you thought of Android and thought, nah. I know it is a problem because Apple products are so much better, although they're getting not as good in the battery life, blah, blah, blah. But it is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you could have protested them based on their cobalt mining and sort of sketchy ethical record, but it was yeah, just an advert with a, a black woman that was the life. No, <laughs> It wasn't the color of the woman. It was the fact that she was playing Mother Nature and Apple was bragging about how all its products were carbon neutral or approaching carbon neutrality um, and just completely endorsing the kind of net zero agenda. Um, it was just, it was, it was, and there was a time when, you know, Apple was associated with heretics. Remember that ad? With Big Brother screen being the smashed, dreamers. 
yeah. the dreamers you know um all the all these kind of you know these these people who thought outside the box you know it was supposedly for them that was who we were supposed to embrace and now it's like you know you have to embrace herd opinion uh, and if you do then apple is the product for you it's done a complete 180 yeah it's really the difference between steve jobs and tim cook isn't it steve jobs yeah. was that guy he was a rebel natural rebel was like up yours doing what i want and you know he was called the billionaire hippie wasn't he famously but and then Tim Cook, who's just full-on woke and a bit effeminate, let's face it. My final peak woke is comedian Hassan Minaj, or could well be his pronunciation, admits to making up stories of racial discrimination for Netflix special, including his daughter's exposure to white powder, not white power. But um, yeah, this this was shocking because he, he, obviously comedy is not literal, but there is a problem when you're making up stuff along racial lines and you're adding to that narrative that we're sort of so racially divided. And one of them was that he went to this girl's house for prom, but she sort of turned him down on the door, which wasn't true. And, you know, there was some implication of race in it. It made up several stories anyway for this presumably rubbish Netflix special, I'm just going to guess. And, uh, you know, and it is a bit weird when you're running out of, the race grifters are running out of material, literally in this case, comedy material, to the point where they have to make it up, you know, and, and yeah, go on. Well, no, yeah, the, the, this is my theory as to why unconscious bias has become such a massive industry, unconscious bias training. It's like the race grifters know that all the polling evidence suggests that um, the British people, the American people, people across the English-speaking world have become significantly less racist in the past 25 to 50 years. Like, you know, 50 years ago, um, if you ask people whether they'd object to their son or daughter marrying someone of a different ethnicity, something like 50% of people would say, yes, I'd object. Or if someone of a different ethnicity moved in next door to you, yeah, 50% would object. Now, the numbers are absolutely negligible, below 5%, compared to countries like Jordan or Pakistan, where they're still up in the 50%. Um, uh, so all the evidences, there's overwhelming evidence we've become a much more tolerant, much less racist society. So how do the race grifters stay in business? They stay in business by saying, aha, people aren't aware of their racism. You may not be able to see it, it may not be disclosed when you ask people whether they'd consciously object to a black person moving in next door, but unconsciously, invisibly, racism is everywhere. Um, uh, so that, that so it's it's a it's a way of inventing the problem because um, the problem has basically been solved. But you want to stay in business. Douglas Murray calls it the St George in retirement syndrome. After St George's slayed the dragon, he's basically become redundant. So he has to conjure up imaginary dragons in order to stay in business. Yeah, and this, I discussed this a lot on my recent podcast, The Current Thing, with Doug Stokes, Professor Doug Stokes. Brilliant episode, brilliant guy. And we, he's got a new book out against decolonization. And one of the things is post-colonial theory is so entrenched in the universities. But it's this theory of just sort of the endless racism and systemic racism of the West. And the universities themselves are said to be part of this and exporting this and institutionalizing this, this alleged racism of the West. But the, so universities just do more and more post-colonial, anti-colonial stuff, but then no, nothing they can do can ever make up for their inherent racism. So it's a kind of like endless, weird, I don't know if you call it a pyramid scheme, but it's, it's very odd. All the data is ignored that says actually white boys are the most disadvantaged and so on and so forth. And Chinese people earn 30% more than white British people and so on. But but the and and even the left wing industry of the universities is seen as just more evidence 
of of the of colonialism. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's it's uh, their ability, the ability of um, uh, the people who have a vested interest in fighting racism, their ability to see racism where there really isn't any is quite extraordinary. And we've seen this with, you know, efforts to decolonize the English countryside and people claiming that there's something inherently racist about hedgerows and buttercups and daisies and styles. Um, And similarly with the story I only mentioned briefly, which was the Edinburgh Botanic Garden story. Why are they giving their staff anti-racism training at the expense of the Scottish taxpayer? Well, because they think they they think there's evidence of racism in the botanic garden, that the flowers are laid out in a particular way, that some plants have been chosen over others, that maybe the very concept of of having a kind of seed bank of of, of preserving biodiversity amongst all these plant species is inherently racist. I mean, they see racism everywhere <laughs> and it does it's not there. <laughs> Pretty particularly ridiculous example. All right. Well that was Pete Woke. Now let's go and do everyone's favourite section. <laughs> it's review the reviews. So I'm just going to call every section people's favourite section. Now, there's been a bit of controversy about review to reviews because uh, we've got so many good reviews this week, but Toby's saying maybe I shouldn't review the really nasty reviews because I just get too unhinged. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it's not not good listening for me to get that angry. No, there's, a, there's an argument for that. So, well, we've got so many, Toby. We've got one here, highly entertaining, five stars. Love you guys, the podcast and the information and counter-arguments you present. I'm often laughing like a hyena. Couple of bugbears. Why does Toby insist on pronouncing eco as echo? We're not American. And why is he so naive, for want of a better word, about the Dems vote-implementing shenanigans? Sorry about that one, Toby. Best <laughs> quote from Nick this week uh, is Sam Smith's T-shirt. It's odd to want to sail so close to the pedo wind. That was a funny moment. Well, do you want to answer those charges, Toby? They're quite mild. Um, yeah, so, um, so it's eco and echo. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't think I was aware that there was an English and American pronunciation of that word. But thank you for enlightening me. Um, on the Democrats' supposed um, fraudulent electoral activities, I'm now more than halfway through the steel, and I would just recommend that you read that book, which um, uh, just just exposes how. Uh, baseless the allegations that um, Joe Biden stole the 2020 presidential election are. Well, someone recommended a counter book, but I can't remember the name of it. Richard Musgrave, enjoyable but long. Oh, here we go again. Four stars, Toby. Found this podcast about a month ago and I enjoy it. The biggest issue so far is the length. The latest episode is just over two hours, which I won't finish. Perhaps the time for each segment could be given to make it easier to skip forward to the most relevant content. Well, perhaps if we weren't a sort of three-man team on a budget, just working our <laughs> butts off. Every, that is an American term. Um, I love this thing, enjoyable but too long. I've never complained about a podcast being too long. Joe Brogan's podcast is three hours. You know what I do? I listen. I mean, I don't listen to it anymore, actually. But let's say I do. I listen for a bit. And then, it, then it, if I want to stop it, I stop it. And then if I want to pick it up later again, I do. And if I don't, I don't. And I don't finish it. The podcast doesn't have a narrative arc. It's not like, well, I've gone to the cinema and paid now and... Yeah, Christopher Nolan's gone on a bit here. He didn't need this extra hour, but I want to know the ending. It's not like that. You can just stop listening and nothing will happen and then you can finish it or not. I mean, what's the problem, Toby? Well, maybe it's um, an indirect compliment. What they're really saying is they don't want to miss a single word of this podcast because they love it so much. But um, therefore, it's become something of a chore to have to spend two hours listening to it. But they couldn't possibly not because they might miss some gem 
Um, yeah. But uh, couldn't we be a bit more merciful and try and contain all our gems within 90 minutes? Yeah, although he says he couldn't finish last one, so I doubt it's that. And then, like I said before, you give us four stars, all you do is harm the podcast. It's not, it's not, you're not, you're not um, Barry Norman. No one's looking for your film review and deciding whether to go and see the film. It's not, your integrity is not at stake. It's simply a vote of support or not. It's five stars or stop listening. Anyway, the, another one, the best thing since London Calling. As someone who listened to London Calling right from the start, I was sorry to see it come to an end. Then they sort of slightly criticize James and say this is the perfect replacement. Uh, Toby is as good and well-informed as ever, and Nick provides the perfect foil, being more skeptical but not so far down the rabbit hole as to refuse to engage on politics and current affairs. Reviews suggesting that Nick is underprepared are inaccurate, and in my view, he's doing a great job in keeping the tempo of the show just right. Great work, chaps, and please keep it up. I've had two reviews now, and I haven't read the other one. It's very nasty, but I can if you want, saying that I'm underprepared. And it's very painful because it's not something you would ever say about me. I mean, I do headliners where you have to write, we have to prepare 20 news stories in one night, and I'm always the best prepared or joint best prepared. In fact, it was so much work, Toby said he didn't really want to do it. And so <laughs> in my preparation, Toby, let's be very fair, on this podcast, I'm doing the preparation, and sometimes I'm briefing you before the show, and you, you don't know about the story, but then you're, as a journalist, you're able to adapt and just have a quick take on it. But my preparation is, I'm like, I'm doing all the preparation. Who else is doing it? And Toby does do some preparation, but you can just show up as a guest, and with your experience, you can have good takes. I just think it's a very unfair charge. And if you knew the review I was thinking about, which was so nasty about me, you'd be understanding why I'm defending myself so passionately. But it was a horrible review that basically said you were just vastly better than me and I was unprepared. So I can read that one later. Yeah, well, and I can attest that you are conscientious to a fault um, about preparing both for headliners and for this show. I was astonished by um, how much preparation you do for headliners. I was hoping to get away with, you know, I remember talking to the producer um, uh, 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 and saying, yeah, he said you've got to get here um, two hours before the show begins because you know, we discussed 20 stories. There's a lot of stuff to read, get through. And I was saying, mate, I can do that in half an hour. It's like, well, Nick Dixon, he gets here two and a half hours before. And, he, and I was like, thinking he can't, not possibly, not really. But actually, I know you do. You are incredibly conscientious and always very well prepared. Thank you very much, Toby. Yeah, it is a lot of preparation for headliners. And you, the more experienced you are, you can get it down a bit. But it is very – because you just got 20 stories and, and then the headlines come in at half 10. There's no way. I mean – you know, eight is like, yeah, nine would be very much pushing it. For hosting, I've got in as early as five, six. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. But um, it's a mad accusation for me. You can call me a lot of things, guys, but not that. Um, we've got so many anyway. We've got excellent, entertaining and informative as usual. Yes, Nick, posh schools and universities are, of course, mainly about networking and rather good at it. Or was that Nick on headliners, perhaps? I think it was. Would welcome a bit longer of Will's section that I could read it on The Daily Skeptic, but I'm usually doing other things, so I prefer to listen. Well, maybe Will could have his whole show in the future. Who knows? Top D, great podcast. I've listened to this podcast since it started and always look forward to it. Love Pete Woke. It just shows how crackers the world has truly become. The review section is superb and a must-have section, so people like me getting mad at the reviews, Toby. Toby, lovable bloke, but hopefully he will soon see how evil the WEF, WHO, Bilderberg Group, Trilateral Commission, etc. truly are and the influence they have. Too scared to give it less than five stars in case my doors get smashed in top work. And there was one other one that said, um, this is a strange one that gives it five stars, but it's a one-star review. That's odd. <laughs> Another one says, you said cishet again, Toby. Another one says, cheer up, Nick, but praises the podcast. There are just so many. Shall I read the one that was really awful about me? No. Um, okay. I'm going to read one which, was, uh, which I quite like, which was sent to... Um, 
the Daily Skeptics um, email address because um, uh, they couldn't find out how to um, uh, post a review. Um, so um, she says, and it's about our, our discussion of uh, Luis Rubiales last week. I'm just listening to this week's episode and the item on Rubiales. You said that you think 99% disagree with your view that there's been a massive overreaction to the kiss. I want to assure you that it is more likely 99% agree with you. The vast majority of people I've spoken to about it think that there was nothing wrong done and that the female player, can't remember her name, showed no sign of any offence taken until some time later. And I agree, it was probably a rogue actor nudging her. And this next paragraph is great. My view is that it was normal football banter. A woman good enough and strong enough to have won the Football World Cup should be made of much sterner stuff than to have been offended by a kiss. In taking the line she has taken, she has done a massive disservice to women and women's football and to all those women who've genuinely been assaulted. I play women's walking football. I'm 67. And if I'd just won the World Cup, I would have expected everyone to be hugging and kissing me. That's pretty good, isn't it? That is good, although we did have another one that said the exact opposite, like, love the podcast, but you're wrong on Rubialis. Someone sent me that as well. I don't have it in front of me, just for balance. And for balance as well, someone says long is good. Anyone who listens to this while running and then complains about the duration either isn't running hard enough or isn't listening hard enough. So that's good. Please not be deterred from you guys. The ultra-long form, pure gold format is very much appreciated. Ten stars. Wow, we've got ten. There's someone else that gave it five stars, but they couldn't. They misfessed the thing on the app. So it's given us one star, and then they've just written five stars. That's happened twice this week. So, (laughs) So even the one stars are actually fives. Okay, so I won't read the one, but I'll just, just so you know, it's Toby that stopped me reading it. But, um, you know, I could, uh, I would have, I was prepared to read the horrible one about me that basically just says Toby's vastly, vastly superior to me. But Toby already thinks oh, maybe, that. Maybe, so. maybe, maybe, maybe you should read it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't read it. <laughs> you know, why, why confirm what you already know? Um, all right. Another great podcast. Well, hopefully I had fun, guys. Hopefully you didn't mind an hour on Russell Brand. Please go to my other podcast, The Current Thing. It's a, we had Doug Stokes, such an interesting episode. We've got more great ones in the pipeline. People loving that episode. Doug Stokes, he's got his brand new book out. I think it'll be very on brand for you guys. It is quite long, so there is that. I'm going along on my other podcast as well now, Toby. But um, please go to that. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon to support me on there. And I will reply to all the comments on there. And thanks to Peter for his very nice review and saying we should consider the odd story from Australia, which we could do because a certain percentage are in Australia of our listeners. And I think that's it. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon, current thing podcast on all formats. And Toby, what would you like to promote? Uh, I'd like to second um, your praise for Doug Stokes. Fantastic guy. Um, Not only the professor of international relations at Exeter University and a fully paid up member of the anti-woke coalition, just written this fantastic book, but is also a member of the Free Speech Union's advisory council. Um, I was going to say, if you're a football fan, you might want to check out my QPR Substack. Um, I think it's... um, substack.tobyyoung all one word or it's tobyyoung.substack I should probably know that before I promote it um, but anyway it's my it's called Pride of West London it's about following QPR and I try and write a match report at the end of each game and if you really want to you can subscribe to it for you can get you can get you can get my entire back catalogue of match reports uh, for, for, for just becoming a subscriber you have to be a subscriber to access them um, and if you enjoy the content on this podcast please go to www.dailyskeptic.org and make a donation. Better yet, become a regular donor. Five pounds a month enables you to comment below each article and it supports me, Will, and the rest of the team enables us to bring you this fantastic content. 
Absolutely, and most of all, treat women well. That's the uh, motto of this week's episode. But that's pretty much it. So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.